0: Welcome to episode 201 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is not Ben Olson because Ben Olson is dead. No, Ben's not dead. Ben uh, is taking the week off because of all the hard work he's doing on the LSAT demon development And I'm very proud that this week I have a pretty long interview with a former student of mine named Kevin Dusa. He's starting at Stanford Law this fall. He's a super interesting guy. We talked about existentialism and his Stanford essays and K-pop and law firm life and all sorts of things. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. After the interview, I'm going to do a few logical reasoning questions from the newly released PrepTest 71. I'm going to do um, section two, questions three and four, and then that's going to be it for today because you don't want to hear me going on and on by myself too much. So this show is going to air on July 15th. That is the day of the July LSAT. Coming up, August 1st is going to be the last day to register for the September LSAT. It's a bummer that that's a full month before August 28th when the July scores are released. So if you're taking the July test, you basically have to register for the September test. Um, I think that's the right strategy. Anyway, you've got till August 1st to do that. And that LSAT's going to be on September 21st. Remember, you can always email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. Send us a selfie when you do that. If you want to see your face plastered on the show's social media stuff, you can listen all sorts of ways, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, thinking Please tell a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. All right. Let me go get this interview with Kevin. I would love to hear what you think of it. I think it's awesome. Here you go. Uh, so with me in, are you in San Francisco, Kevin? I'm in Palo Alto. Oh, Palo Alto. Okay. Already. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> with me in Palo Alto is a future Stanford law student, former LSAT student of mine, Kevin Dusa. Yeah, hi, thank you so much.
1: Yeah. So, you from Palo Alto, or is this? No, so I currently like live and work there, but I'm technically from right across the bay in Fremont. That's where gotcha. I grew up. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, you took my class, Kevin,
0: like a year ago, June, July, 2018. Okay, summer of last year,
1: mm-hmm. and. When did you take the LSAT? Oh well, I took it a couple of times. So I took it uh, that July, that September, and that November. Comfortable sharing your scores? A little uncomfortable, to be honest with you, because uh, I never hit my goal score. So personally, I you know whenever I think about my LSAT score, I feel like I failed myself. But I think you know overall, I I did really well on the LSAT, and I I never reached the like elite master tier that you did right but i did well enough to feel comfortable applying so well and i mean whatever scoreboard
0: you're you're in a stanford so right <laughs> I I, that's what it i keep really telling matters. myself right it doesn't matter how i end up doing
1: all roads ended up leading to the same place <laughs> how were your grades and uh where'd you go to school okay so like you i'm a uc davis alum uh, oh right I yeah use, i know right? that and um you know, my first, like my freshman year, I had like two B's and that was a huge mistake in my opinion. And then after that, I had a rising grade trend. And so overall, and I pointed this out in my addenda that I had a rising grade trend and that I took my hardest classes at the very end and, you know, just kind of like very obvious things, but I just wanted to make sure, just pointed out to them that I was like a a near straight A student uh, when the going got tough.
0: That goes a long way, especially at the very top schools, right? Like yeah. the Harvards and Stanfords and Yales of the world, I think they might actually prefer grades slightly over LSAT scores. So yeah. you, now you need to have a great LSAT score. But right. Grades, yeah, definitely. Uh, the grades do mean a lot to those types of schools because they have mm. a, a million amazing applicants. So you took it three times. You took it in November, and then
1: you applied like right after that? Yeah. Uh, okay, so let me just go back a little bit and tell you what I was thinking because what I did is not something that I recommend to people. What I did was actually pretty stupid. So uh, I started preparing my applications in maybe May of 2018 and I didn't apply until January, 2019. So, you know, I had maybe, 20 30 drafts of my personal statement by the time that I applied but I knew that because I was applying so late that I was severely you know limiting my my abilities to get into the schools I really wanted to go to so yeah I did apply at the end <laughs> in the last week of January to all these schools and I applied to 15 schools so basically everywhere except what is that UT Austin and I also applied to UCLA. I think I did not apply to Virginia. That was another school I didn't really care to apply to. But that means like everything from like Chicago to UPenn to Berkeley to Duke to NYU, Columbia, Stanford, Michigan. Harvard, literally Michigan. everything in the
0: top 14. Exactly.
1: For Virginia.
0: Except and for Virginia. UT.
1: And UT, yeah. And then you added UCLA. And UCLA, because I really like LA. I really like that city. So I was like, if I can go there, I will happily, happily go there. And, uh, you know, I uh, I got wiped for the most part. <laughs> I got absolutely demolished in the application process because I applied so late and I knew that going in. And so my, go- my plan was, if I get into a school that I would like to go to, I will go to that school. If I don't get into that school, that's totally fine. I have a solid job. I'm working at a law firm. You know, I can stick it out for another year and reapply next cycle with a better LSAT score, right? So I just try to be very level-headed about it and realize that my timetable was flexible. And like Nathan says all the time on the podcast, you know, law school will be there for when you're ready for it. So you don't need to really rush the process. Right. But I got extremely lucky. <laughs> I did get extremely lucky that uh Stanford took a look at my application and, and and saw the merit in it. And if I had to guess why I got into Stanford, but I got waitlisted at most places, that would be because Stanford kind of waits a little longer than most schools do when it comes to accepting students. I mean, this is my theory, that they can wait until, you know, January finishes up, and then they can really start digging into applications. Uh, Whereas some schools, like schools I thought I was a shoo-in at, like Berkeley, you know, they start accepting students very early on in the process. And they, you know, by the time I had applied, they might have already filled up 80 to 90% of their, you know, their incoming class. So that's life.
0: That's interesting. I, I think they kind of have to. I mean, yeah, the, there's a lot of movement on the wait lists at the very last minute at the Harvard's and Stanford's and right. Yale's. Right? right. Because they get so many very highly qualified applicants and yeah. they can really pick and choose at the last minute and they're still going to be fine. But a school like Berkeley, you know, they're like sort of hanging in there in barely inside the top. 14 yeah, barely or top 10 anymore. Or right. Yeah. They have to be a little more aggressive, I think, about uh, filling up their class earlier in the cycle. That does make sense. So, wait. So, you got waitlisted a whole bunch of places? Yeah, Then you got in at Stanford and then you just, like, withdrew from
1: all the other places? Yes. So, I can't really remember because it's been a couple of months and, uh, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Because this whole process was so extremely stressful and it was keeping me up at night. And, oh, God. (laughs) But, essentially, what happened was, yeah, I, I think, so let's say I applied to, like, 14 schools in the, you know, the top 14 schools, I got waitlisted at like 12 of them or no, I got waitlisted at 10 of them. I got in at three and then got denied at Berkeley. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so, awesome. So Harvard actually did uh waitlist me and, uh, I take that as a real accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> did you do an interview at Harvard? No, unlucky because they just, they just waitlisted. You. Yeah, yeah. If I had stayed on the waitlist and had the opportunity to actually enroll, then they, they do, the interview, very very late. Okay. Yeah, but um, you know, I got into Stanford, and Stanford's in my backyard, and uh, you know, I got the waitlist from Harvard, and I was like, well, I'm sorry, boys, I'm going to Stanford.
0: Well, it's also you know arguably
1: the best law school in the world, right? I would say so. You know, I have my opinions on Yale. My personal <laughs> opinions. I, <laughs> I don't want to sound petty or anything. You're not a Kavanaugh fan. You know what? That was hot. okay. So. Earlier, I actually misspoke a little bit. I did not apply to Yale because of the Kavanaugh thing. And because Uh, the way that Kavanaugh spoke about his time at Georgetown prep reminded me so much of my own experiences at a prep school. I also went to an all boys prep school here in the Bay Area. And the way that he talked about the kind of like masculine culture there, very, very scary, very, very reminiscent. And you know, I realized that Georgetown Prep was just a feeder school to Yale and then Yale Law School. And you know, I just got a really bad taste in my mouth. And I was reading all kinds of student testimonials about the school and, and how, you know, for the underprivileged or the minority students, it's a little harder to, to cut it at that school, you know, particularly because they don't have grades. And funny enough, how that actually makes it more difficult at least from what I was reading online. And say a little bit more about that. That's interesting. Why why are grades better for... Right. So uh, let me just throw a fat disclaimer on this because I read this online and I read this on the forums online and you can guess which forums I was reading this on. So there's a chance that I got hoodwinked or completely fooled and I drank the Kool-Aid. But from what I was reading, it just seemed like you know to get onto the the law review and to get into those kinds of prestigious clubs and organizations, you kind of have oh. to know or be in the loop. Whereas if you're coming, like if you were like me and you come from a family where almost nobody's ever gone to college and, uh, you know, and you know, you're the only person here kind of slinging it through. You're gonna, you're gonna go to a school like, like Yale and you're just going to feel unprepared. And you're not going to be in those same kinds of cliques. Yeah. And I was reading that again and again and again and again. And I was, that, this was back in, in, in October when I was deciding what schools I would apply to. And at the same time in October, if you remember that was when the Kavanaugh things was going on. And uh, so I uh, made, in my opinion, the easy decision to, uh, to back out of, of applying to Yale, uh, even though they sent me a fee waiver. I was like, mm, no, I'm not going to do it. Also their fee waiver was ugly. <laughs> what you their, the fee waiver was so ugly. So all, all the schools, when they send you the fee waivers, it's always like this very pretty font and they have um, all these like graphics going on and beautiful PDFs and everything. <laughs> Yale's was just a wall of text, <laughs> just plain text. Uh, they're just, you know, they know their, their ego. They know, they know how much weight they have. So they just sent me a a plain text email with a with a very plain text PDF waiver form and all that was on that email was their insignia at the bottom. And you know, that rubbed me the wrong way. Huh? Yeah. Well, we're Yale. We don't have to try, you know who we are. It kind of feels that way at the end of the day. But, uh, yeah. you know, I also just want to say to everybody else who wasn't as fortunate as I am, cause I did get extremely lucky and I might sound a little cocky right now. And I might sound like, Oh, this kid has everything made for him already. You know, he's gotten into Stanford. Um, just, I'm apologizing if I sound that way. And also it was not easy None of this process was easy, and Nathan and the podcast basically pulled me out of the gutter when I started listening to this podcast. That was uh, when everything started turning around for me, and highly recommend it. I always push my friends in the Bay Area towards Nathan's class, and I push my friends in D.C. towards Ben's class because, you know, I've taken it, I've read the books, and I I actually uh, was subscribed to The Demon for a bit, and I'm telling you, like, that was the moment when things started changing, and I realized that I had—I really did have an opportunity to apply to these top 14 schools. So, you know, awesome, just, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate
0: that. Yeah, not no plug. You didn't tell me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. Okay, so you took the LSAT three times. Uh, did you end up yeah. scoring higher on your? I had an upward trend. Yeah. Upward trend. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. And you just decided not to apply, not to take it a fourth time. Well, you need you needed to get your applications in. So I guess you were willing to do it the next cycle if you needed to. Exactly.
1: You know. And um, I also believe that they only look at your top score. So my top score and my my bottom score in the percentage game is pretty significantly different. But it didn't seem to matter to a lot of the schools. I mean, I got waitlisted at most of the schools because my top LSAT score got them to open up my application.
0: Yep. Did, um, right. So did you
1: have to explain the difference between the scores ever? No, I did not. I, I struggled with this a lot. You know, I had a friend, a coworker who was also applying to law school and she had, she had taken the LSAT multiple times. And one of her, her latest LSAT score was actually a little lower and we discussed it and we debated it. And we I swear we talked about it for months, whether or not we should write addendas. And uh we both decided in the end, you know what? We believe they only really look at your top score because what's the point of looking at the bottom score? And so long as, you know, the discrepancy isn't like maybe a margin of 10 points. If it's less than that, then then so be it. And for her, you know, she took it her junior year and her senior year. So there was a year gap in between her scores. I told her, you know, that that's already obvious like when they open up your application. Right. You're taking harder classes your senior year. And for me, I just thought I have an upward trend. It is what it is. It's not perfect. Um, nothing in this world is ever perfect. We're always operating under uh suboptimal circumstances and I just had to roll with it. So
0: Yeah. Well, like I've said on the show a million times, they would be stupid to consider anything other than your highest score. Yeah, definitely. Right. They would be like lowering the prestige of the school because the highest score is what they report out to the ABA and it's what they report out to us news. So Mm -hmm. if they're actually considering lower scores, if they're averaging the scores or if they're taking anything into consideration other than the highest score, they're being fools. Like they're not they're oh, not yeah. doing the oh, most yeah. to enhance the prestige of the school. So like, yeah. you don't want to go to that school anyway, if that's yeah. what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're looking at you,
1: Yale. I'm just kidding.
0: I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm yeah. Well, I mean, the, right at the very extreme top, like yeah. they can do whatever they want, yeah. but I uh, still, you know, it's always just anecdotal because mm-hmm. like you say, we don't have perfect information, but I've sent many people to Stanford who took the LSAT three times. Yeah. Stanford is clearly not judging you or making you explain it or no. anything. No. And these days, now that they've changed the whole rules about the number of times you can yeah, take it, it. eight and, times
1: now? And, yes, lifetime. They
0: <laughs> Did you read the whole unnecessarily complicated thing that they did?
1: I really am kind of out of it now, but I did actually read it. And I was like, so is it eight times or is it three times? It's so confusing. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't care yeah, that
0: much. Yeah. It's stupid. It's yeah. whatever. It's like three times in 12 months and five times in 24 months. I don't god! Know, whatever. Well, okay. it's plenty of times. So let, it doesn't
1: matter. Let me say it here, okay, because <laughs> this is a pretty big platform and a lot of people listening to this have to interact with the LSAC. The LSAC, I agree, is a dinosaur and it needs to be dealt with. It needs to go away almost. I think the LSAT is a stupid test. Yeah, you know, I know plenty of smart people, plenty of really intelligent people who struggle with the LSAT because it is a whole other language, and you know, it's not really. Oh my God, it is so far removed from legal work and even legal studies. It's such a such an arcane, stupid test, and it really is. <laughs> it really is, you know, awarding or rewarding those people who have the resources and the money and the time and kind of like the community behind them to get them the help they need. Right. It, it's if you're like me and you're kind of like running this whole thing solo, the LSAT really is uh, a son of a gun and it's not fair, you know, and the whole digital thing Oh my God,
0: <laughs> there's no fairness in the world, <laughs> there's man. No fairness. Yeah. The rich are always going to get richer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do what we can to try to, to try to ameliorate that. Yes, right. I like, appreciate it, I yeah. don't come from money and mm-hmm. I don't come, I had no LSAT prep or whatever, yeah. but, I've been able to do a few things here and there to definitely try to open the doors. I mean, that's the best you can do, but like I, my thing is if you eliminate the LSAT, there's just going to be some other biases, right? Like just like what you were just talking about with Yale, not having grades. I mean, okay, so you don't get rid of the LSAT. What are we going to do then? yeah yeah talk to your family like talk to your <laughs> like you have yeah, to have some they'll figure out a way to gatekeep i agree of course yeah. yeah that's well that's the whole that's the whole point of it right <laughs> like they can't admit everyone to the elite law school so they have to have some way yeah. of differentiating and undergrad i'm glad they use undergraduate grades but even that mm. if you have sat you know if you're if you have money and resources then you, you can fake those two <laughs> well yeah or you can just, you can have a tutor the entire time during mm-hmm. college, you know, there's Or lots you can of go things. to
1: a school where they don't fail, you know, the the top, the top undergrad schools. They don't drop students.
0: Well, or so, they don't like,
1: they let I you mean, retake at, like courses. David, dude, when you go to Davis,
0: if mm. you're me, right? First mm-hmm. generation college student at UC Davis when I'm 19, 18, 19 years old yeah. and I'm at a campus of 20,000 students yeah. and I didn't. I got horrible grades my first year because I didn't even realize that it was important to Mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. like the ship had sailed on my Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. Case by the time I was done with my first year of uh, at At Davis, Davis, like there's no way I was going to Stanford because my grades were never going to be high enough after that. It doesn't matter what my LSAT is. Like I was just not getting (laughs) into Stanford.
1: Yeah. I had already fucked myself at (laughs) at age 19, you know, you say you fucked yourself, but at the end of the day, you know, that information wasn't given to you. You weren't told when you were 18, 19, hey, right. you need to know that in order to go to law school, this is what you have to do. This is the kind of work you need to pull out. And if you had been told, if there was, like, a system there to let students know, if Davis had better outreach, for example, maybe, you know, your your dreams wouldn't have sailed. But, man, the world is not fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, yeah. If you start
0: looking for fairness here, definitely. yeah. Gonna be searching for a while. It's just not not how things go. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's see. So let's shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. You you wanted to talk we have a few topics that we want to cover, right? The first thing we got back in touch because I saw a tweet of yours talking Mm -hmm. about financing, right? About like what you're gonna do with your undergraduate loans. Speaking of UC Davis. Yep. We also wanna talk about your law firm experience that you just had.
1: Yeah. That you described as hell, I believe. (laughs) Okay. Uh, If any of my coworkers ever hear this, I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) And we also want to talk about your uh, potentially talk about your personal statement
1: or your essays or whatever. Gotcha. Okay. So starting with my undergraduate debt. So I'm someone who struggles with anxiety, and for example, during the LSAT, you know, my hand shook the entire time. Oh man. Each each and every single time that I took it, and I'm not someone who self medicates because I don't trust myself. So that's just something that I've learned to deal with. And my first ever panic attack was when I signed the promissory note on my first undergraduate loan, and I saw that I just agreed to pay maybe twenty thousand dollars someday in the future. So this is something that's very, very serious—the money that that hangs over your head. And I tell you, when people listening to the show, if you become an attorney, you know the debt is going to be the reason why you wake up in the morning and go to work, not because of the value of your work. Your your work's going to be pretty boring. What's going to get you out of bed is, you know, holy shit, I got to pay my bills. Mm. I'm someone who's uh, sober about this. So I try to stay on top of things. And so I have some couple tips to like, uh, help people stay on top of their undergraduate debt because you know, it is important. And I actually have a pretty decent amount of it. Not, not the worst in the world, but it's decent. So what year did you graduate from Davis? September, 2018. So the,
0: okay, so let's see. So you graduated. Yes. I know it's complicated. 20 years after I graduated from Davis. Uh-huh. Tuition when I was there, I believe was like, it might've been tuition and the living expenses. Mm. And it was like 14 grand. Mm, it's about double that. Yeah. Yeah. It's about yeah. Double that. And you were borrowing all yes. of it.
1: Well, I mean, there were some grants
0: because, okay. you know,
1: yep. came from nothing and all that kind of stuff. So the, yep. the government helps out a bit about with half. So let's say the total cost is like 80K over four years. Then the government basically paid for half of that. Mm -hmm. And I have the other half to deal with someday. Right. And so what's going to happen when you graduate, um, is you're going to get a letter from all of your student loan services and they're going to tell you, Hey, you're on a, uh, you're in a grace period right now. So you need to go find work, start stockpiling some money and be ready to pay us in about six to eight months. And you're also, your school will probably make you do a exit, exit loan interview where they kind of go through all this information. It's like a book worth of information. They try to put it in bullet points, but really I recommend that you actually take the time to read it. And so, yeah, so my first, my grace period ended in April and then my first bill was due in July and in April I had already known that I was going to law school So I should have actually called right there. I should have called right in April, right when my grace period ended. And that was a mistake that I did on my part. And I ended up calling in at the end of June. And what I ended up telling them was, hey, my name's Kevin. I have this letter saying my bill is due in a couple weeks. I just, you know, I'm ready to pay it. But I also wanted to let you know that I'll be going to law school soon, uh, basically in August. And what that means is, what that meant was they put a hold on my account my student loan services went out and they contacted my uh, my law school. And my law school got back to them saying, yep, he's going to be a full-time enrolled student. And if you're enrolled and you're full-time, then you get the deferment. And the deferment basically means in law school, you don't have to pay your monthly installments, but your interest will probably still accrue. And I say probably because it depends on whether or not you got subsidized or unsubsidized loans. The subsidized loans, the government, I don't, wow, this is kind of amazing. The government actually pays your interest or, or keeps it at bay. But for your unsubsidized loans, the government will not. And uh, it can be, it can tack on like a couple, you know, for even for a small loan, like a, a loan of $5,000, you know, you could be looking at an extra $1,000 by the time you graduate law school. So right. it's really good to just keep this in mind. And if your family has the opportunity, if they have the means to help you pay the monthly interest, I highly recommend that you do that. You're saving yourself hours in the firm later on in your life, right? Just think about it. Every single dollar is a moment you have to spend working in a firm. So, you know, you wanna limit the amount of time that you have to work in a firm, right? Unless you were kind of sociopathic or, uh, excuse me, I mean like, you're kind of the type of person who likes working in a firm. I don't mean to use the word sociopathic, it's outdated anyways. I'm saying that unless you like working in a firm, you're going to want to minimize the amount of time you have to work in a firm. Slytherin was the word you were looking for. Thank you, God. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah,
0: I mean, compound interest is a bitch, man. Mm-hmm, definitely. When you have it working on your side, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But when you have when you're on the wrong side of that compound interest, yeah, it's like... <laughs> Every additional dollar that you spent that you didn't have to spend while you were an undergrad, you're going to pay every dollar that you borrowed or every dollar that you like don't pay back Mm -hmm. early
1: enough. is just going to be multiple (laughs) dollars 20 years from now. And that's how they get you, you know? And you know, my last piece of advice would be, Hey, we have an election coming up, everybody in 2020 and, uh, You know, I understand that the legal system itself is a conservative and slow-moving behemoth of a thing, but there are two candidates who have promised to help us deal with student loan debt, and one of them is promising to wipe out all of it, Senator Bernie Sanders. So, you know, you should make the rational choice when it comes to (laughs) the 2020 election, right? (laughs) That's my last piece of advice about your student loans.
0: (laughs) Cool.
1: Yeah. Talk about,
0: uh, I mean, you know, and my best advice about law school loans is just don't, just don't <laughs> like, just don't pay for law school. Just, yeah. You know, yeah. you, I'm sure yeah. are going to be taking on more debt, but you're also going to be graduating from Stanford where
1: the opportunities will even, abound. Yeah.
0: Yeah, even the last person. Literally, you could finish last in your class at Stanford, <laughs> and you could still go work in big law for yeah. you know one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. And So the your it's your ability 190 to actually one hundred ninety nowadays, but uh, one ninety, yeah, yeah. one ninety. Your ability to pay back those loans is you know that's that's kind of not really
1: yeah, it's questionable. A, yeah, and I don't plan on being the uh, bottom in the class. And also, Stanford is um they they help me a lot. They have they are promising to help a lot. And again, I am very, very, very lucky and rare, right? And I, I actually did go uh, talk to the dean and, you know, because they make you fill out your FAFSA and something called a CSS profile, which heads up, you have to pay for that. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't know that that it costs, you know, and I applied to all these schools and it cost me like $200 to send all all that information. They don't have told you that until, you know, it's checkout time. But, um, you know, I went in, I got my first letter back saying, "This is your your award money," and it was already a significant portion, and I was already like, you know, very very grateful. But I thought about it and I said, you know, I'm not going to law school for myself, really. I come from a pretty big family, and I'm the only person who's really going to graduate school in order to produce and to cover for my family. I have another sister who's going to graduate school, but she's not coming back to the United States. Uh, she's, she's in England right now and she's graduating from Cambridge and she's a genius, but you know, I can't rely on her. So I went to my, my Dean and I was explaining this to her and, um, we worked something out that was very favorable. And I got super lucky that Stanford has resources. Very, very, very grateful Man, when I, when I put it into context, I really am like the luckiest son of a gun on planet earth right now. So, <laughs> But yeah, so don't be afraid to go to talk to your dean and to explain to them your financial circumstances, right? Don't be afraid to be like, you know, this is what it's like growing up. I live with my, my mom or I live with my dad or my parents are divorced and my, this one parent is deceased or I have this many siblings, I have this many nephews, you know, I'm not doing it just for myself, right? all that kind of stuff. You, you really have to put the human element, the narrative to that FASFA and CSS profiles or else, you know, you'll be doing yourself a disservice in the long run. Yeah.
0: Okay. Excellent. You want to talk about your um,
1: law firm uh, life? Yeah, sure. Nathan, quickly for me, could you tell me like what your general expectations about working in a law firm would be like, and I'll let you know if, you know, if I'm just going to be saying the obvious stuff
0: i would expect extremely long hours mm-hmm. of extremely tedious yet also extremely high pressure that mm-hmm. my understanding is that it's excruciatingly boring mm-hmm. and at the same time like life or death pressure <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i would i would agree when you're an associate that's essentially what's going on is you know you have deadlines you have an, an an insane amount of work to get done. And you're going to be there from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'm going to repeat that, okay? Because people need to know this. <laughs> this is my life now. And, I, you know, I have to be sober. I have to be cognizant of, of the risks involved. And So 9 a.m. to 7
0: p.m., man, no, no, that's I terrible. 7 that's a.m. Not... to 9 p.m. <laughs> because I'm
1: thinking you're going to want the bonus. You're going to want to work those extra hours. You don't want to bill overtime. So you get a bonus to help pay off your student loans, right? So, you know, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m basically you have time to eat shower brush your teeth and go to bed you know and wake up and go back to work in the morning and if you do that for 3 or 4 years you're probably able to finish it and i'm talking about like big law you know working in a top 50 firm and also it does help to go to a top 14 school to work at a big firm but it's not it's not wholly necessary and you know those those firms 30 to 50 still pay the top rates but they'll accept students like for example here in the bay area they'll accept students from like Santa Clara, for example, which is not a top 14 school at all, right? Yeah, or Hastings or whatever. But yeah, as an employee at one of these firms, you know, you're dealing with the kind of like anxieties that the partners and the associates put onto you, right? So, you know, the partner's out there fishing for the biggest fish that he or she can catch all the time. That's all they're really worried about, right? And then once they catch that fish, they have to wrangle and argue with that fish about, how much money they can make off that fish. And once that fish says, okay, we'll pay you this amount and this amount only for this amount of work, then the deadlines come in and the stress comes in. And that's when, you know, the partner shuts their door and doesn't leave for for 12 or 14 hours. And the associates are there morning till night. And the employees, like I was an employee there, they end up having to, you know, kind of let a lot of the stress roll off your back. Like you have to be pretty good at that. Because there's a lot of times where, you know, the partner is just kind of a jerk or the associate just doesn't have time to answer your questions or, you know, like there was one time and I'm not going to name names, but I'm sure that if you, if you looked into it, you could find out where I worked that, uh, this one partner asked me to do second grade math for him because I guess he couldn't be bothered to do it. (laughs) And I was like, did you forget how to move the decimal place? And I emailed him back and I was just like, are you sure this is what you want me to do? And then he like CC'd my boss and was like, I can't like, what's wrong with Kevin? Why is he not, you know, and I was just following orders. Yeah. Following orders. And you know, I, I did the math in my head. I moved the desolate place and did the subtraction. And, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of ego and the kind of stress you deal with working in a law firm. And I, I really do mean that there, there are big in, inflated egos when you reach the partner level and it's pretty sad to see. And, uh, and it shows that, you know, they never really learned any humility or that the, you know, every once in a while you catch a big fish and then you think you're king of the world or something. I don't know, but, you know, yeah, they're
0: masters of the universe, man.
1: That's I think just, so, man. Yeah. It's, it's very frustrating, you know, but I'm yeah. really happy I'm done with it. And, uh, I did, I did, uh, make enough money to travel and to dye my hair and to go to concerts and to hang out with my friends and, you know, to, uh, to to live a, a decently good summer before law school. So that's, you know, my first day at work, I went to the store and I bought myself a globe. And I sat it on my desk and uh, I was that guy who stared at the globe all day, rem- <laughs> oh, reminding myself what it was all for. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always amazed
0: at my my students who LSAT students who work at law firms and they're like, not able to do their LSAT studying because oh. <laughs> of their work shit. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're going to be their bitch as long as you allow them yep. to make you their bitch. Like that's, what's going to happen. Like yeah. they're never going to stop abusing you if yes. you let them abuse you Yep. and yep, you're yep, going to yep. not study for the LSAT. Like what <laughs> you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot for mm-hmm. your whole legal career. Like that should be the priority. Exactly. And, Like if they fire you, they fire you. Exactly. I don't know.
1: That's that's actually the exact mentality that I took into it because if you're doing the uh, the calendar calculation correctly, you'll see that I was working at this firm when I was studying for the LSAT, and so, you know, I just put myself in LSAT boot camp mode for the November test. Uh, Essentially, all of October and all of November, I woke up at 6:30 a.m. I, uh, you know, did my morning routine. I did a section, and then I went to work. Did a section and review during lunch, and then I did two sections to complete a test after work. So I stayed behind in one of the empty offices, and I studied in there, and I reviewed. And then I went home, ate dinner, and went to bed. I did that for uh, like four solid weeks, because it was it's so important. <laughs> it's so important that you work your muscles out, right? It's so important that you're as, as pumped as you possibly can be before the test, so. Well, if you can't do that for four weeks, do it for two. I mean, and
0: that, that sounds a little extreme because that's like you were doing a test every day, right? Yeah, so you did it in like sort of sprint mode, which I wouldn't normally recommend. But yeah. if you don't have the work ethic to just basically do morning till night, you know, okay, okay mm-hmm. you've got your shitty job but you're also going to get up early to, to work on the LSAT. You're going to study at lunch. You're going to study after work yeah. in the empty office. If you don't have the work ethic to do that for a while while you're studying for the LSAT, then why the hell do you think you're going to make big money in <laughs> a career that requires that type of work, yeah. not for a month, but, but for, for years,
1: years, decades, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You really have to you have to find your grit in studying for the LSAT it is not a test of intelligence. It is a test of resources and then grit. So if you have the grit, you can do it. I, I think anybody could really, you know, get into those, the top, like the 90th percentile, if you're willing to just completely strap down and, and, and buckle it up. And I know Nathan, and I probably disagree about, you know, if you should be sprinting right before the test, but, uh, that's my personal philosophy. I, you know, I, It's certainly one
0: way to do it. I'm not saying
1: that there's one right way. That's not like
0: that wouldn't, I don't think work for me. And I, I, I don't, I'm not sure it's optimal because I would prefer that you just like study one hour a day for six months or whatever. But the point is just, you're going to have to put in a serious amount of time. There's 90 practice tests that are available. Each one of those practice tests has a hundred questions on it the LSAT is a test of how hard you can work. You said grit. I think that's a good word for it, but it's just basically like how hard can you work? Because if you do all 90 of these practice tests, I mean, yeah, show me one person who did 90 practice tests and didn't improve.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, and you can like pirate those practice tests off your friend too. So it's like, it doesn't actually require resources to get the tests. You just do them, you know, it requires
1: an hour a day for as long as it takes. I would, you know, what I recommend to people is that, Well, I recommend Nathan Fox and I recommend Ben Olson, but then, you know, I understand some people are like, oh, I don't know, Nathan's personality or or Ben's so far away, and (laughs) no offense Nathan, but, you know, you scare some people, and that's totally fine. Find your LSAT guru. There are tons of them, and, uh, you know, find their books, or if you can afford it, take their courses, and then once you kind of understand how they approach the test, start taking as many tests as you possibly can. Yeah. And adjust your timetable if you have to, right? So. Hey, there's
0: ninety, you know, there's ninety practice tests, right? Mm-hmm. Four sections per test. Mm-hmm. If you did a section a day for 360 days, you'd be done with all 90 tests. <laughs> that would take you a year, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, oh, you don't have the, no, I can't do that. That's too much. Okay, well then maybe you're not a lawyer. Yeah, like that, that, that's not the discipline to do a 35 minute section every day for a year. Yeah.
1: It's, it's scratching so the surface yeah. of lawyer type of discipline. I mean, and just so people are aware, I was studying for the LSAT in undergraduate as well. I uh, when I was taking my full class load and working three jobs, I still found time to do a section a day. And I, I mean, that even during finals week. Yeah, I'm crazy. So fat disclaimer right there. Yeah. But that's,
0: that's like a lawyer. Like that's what lawyer, lawyer, I mean, all the
1: successful lawyers I know are crazy. Yeah. We, you have to be crazy. And if you want to hit that elite score, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and so I know what it takes and I know what it looks like in a law firm. And that's why I'm talking about how you're probably going to hate it. You know, I've already put in so much work into this career and it's like, damn, and now I got to go work for the man (laughs) and put in that same quality of work. I'm just so. My philosophy is I'm going to try to get it done as quickly as possible, we'll try to get out of there as quickly as possible, we'll finish up. And sorry, future employer, if you end up listening to this and you're like, oh, Kevin's leaving me? Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. This is, I, I'm telling you right now, I don't care. I am going to get in there, make the money I have to make, and then find something that will allow me to sleep at night. Yep. So hard truth
0: makes sense yeah. i mean you're and you're like a success like that's that's the that's the route to success right there i mean that's yeah. like how people are successful in the yeah. <laughs> in the legal business yeah. like you'll do great you'll you'll pay off your loans mm-hmm. and you'll then end up with uh, a
1: satisfying and you know yeah. successful career after that yeah and uh that's what you know my final days at my law firm i was a lot of my attorney friends or i guess they're not friends but my coworker. what do you call it? the associates the partners they're constantly asking me uh you know, when are you going to come back? You know, uh, maybe you'll work here one day. Uh, how long, you know, this is your career now. And I always ended up telling them, you know, I don't plan on being a lawyer forever. <laughs> the world's the world's. Got, they love that. You know, yeah. It blew some of their minds. They were like, what did you just say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe three, four years. I could stick it out, you know, uh, doing the sprint mode. And then I got to start thinking about my long-term health and, uh, my anxiety and, you know, my family and, uh, my career and, and giving back to the world and doing something about climate change and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I can't be a lawyer forever. I can't be working at, uh, at these big firms forever. It's just, I already decided. Yeah.
0: That's awesome, man. All right. Let's talk a little bit about your, uh, your personal statement or okay. your other essays. I'm actually interested in the, uh, the Stanford optional essays oh, as well, So, yeah. but
1: you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Okay, cool. Let's see. So I, I mentioned that I started like, I applied, sent in my applications, paid, sent, everything ready, completed last week of January, but I did not wait until after I had taken the LSAT to begin drafting my personal statement. My personal statement, you know, anytime I had an idea, anytime, you know, I had a a moment or two to myself and I was just like feeling in a kind of creative, juicy mood, whether that was, you know, in between classes or I'm on the bus and I'm just writing a note in my phone I basically started creating my personal statement in May of 2018. And I'm sure that if I go back to like 2015, if I like reboot my computer that broke, I'm sure I have something there, like even just ideas, right? And uh, and the biggest difference between my first draft and my final draft was not necessarily content, but tone. And the tone was the most significant portion. And when I spoke to uh, people on admissions committee. When I went to these um, the events where you know they can, where you can ask your questions and whatnot. Their biggest piece of advice was you need to. Everybody needs to focus on tone, right? You need to come off sober, cognizant, professional, right? Calm. Yeah. You need to, and I, I guess in my opinion, I, I throw the word sophisticated on there a little bit, right? You kind of want to, in order to hit those marks, to to have like a sober tone. You need to have a kind of. Sophisticated take. You need to understand that uh, even if you are going to law school for social justice reasons, that if you get on your personal statement as if it's a soapbox, you're going to come off very naive. You're going to sound kind of uh, young and idealistic. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's a
0: great tip. You do not want to sound like no. a college campus undergrad rabble rouser.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I studied sociology at school and. I would like to consider myself someone who's uh, hyper aware of society's issues and whatnot, as opposed to, you know, the average. But yeah, man, that, that first personal statement, I was on my soapbox, you know, here I am with my my loudspeaker screaming at them, you know, I'm here to do, to do something about it, as opposed to my final draft, which was, it was a hint of that, but really it was very general and it was very open and it was, it was a much more like confident tone. Right, and so to move on from that, I think in order to strike that kind of a tone, you do have to think a bit about content, right? So, my my friend, who my coworker, who was also applying to law school, she's actually going to Columbia now, and so she, you know she's also I take her I took her advice very very seriously because she was able to work with a, a writing consultant, um, she was able to afford that, and that was really really amazing. So. You know, through her I got a little bit of consulting on my personal statement and, you know, when when it comes to like your your personal life, right, when you're talking about those those very personal circumstances in your life, and if you're like me, those are the kinds of circumstances you probably would only speak to a therapist about, right? Um, those kinds of circumstances, she recommended to me that I keep it to maybe thirty-seventy. Thirty percent of it can be that kind of personal material and seventy percent needs to be of this kind of professional tone. And I kind of tweaked it to about 45, 55, because my personal experiences are very, very important to me. And I know I would not be going to law school if it weren't for them. And I actually think in a weird way, uh, if I wear it like a, like armor, then that's what I'm taking into battle is my personal experiences. And, and this is kind of why I didn't want to uh, read my personal statement, like on the show, because it is, It it is kind of personal and there are some things on there that, uh, maybe one day I'd feel comfortable sharing with my friends, but you know, it's, it's difficult. And yeah, sure. Yeah. And then in the second half of my personal statement, that's when I talked about, you know, my, my studies, my professional work. I was pretty politically active on campus when I was at UC Davis. I like started like a talk show, uh, in order to discuss how, uh, You know, our chancellor had um, done some pretty uh, unethical things. Well, that's why you're such
0: a good radio guest. I was wondering why you you sound
1: (laughs) like you've been uh, on the mic before. Yeah, I did it for like three or four years. So, um, thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I had to talk about this a lot. I had to talk about deep political issues where you know there are stakeholders and there the opinions of stakeholders are baked in because of history. And so you have to understand the history of, of their opinions. And if you understand the history, maybe you can have a fruitful discussion about it. But if you're just walking in there screaming at each other, you're not really going to accomplish anything. And so there was a lot of times I had to discuss that kind of stuff. And I did talk about that a lot in my personal statement, because in my opinion, that was the best thing I ever did in my life so far was begin a process of, 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 of creating skills in dialogue and kind of discourse and, uh, you you know cuz at school when you argue in papers it's very one sided but that's not how the world works and that's definitely not how the legal profession works the legal profession is often dealing with creating balance right creating a kind of agreement between your client and their adversary you have to strike deals more often than you go to court and you fight to the death right so
0: yeah. Just two sides to every story. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's not two sides to the story, then you're not even going to be in court. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you're only going to be in court if there are actual, you know, legitimate things to say on each side. And so your whole thing of like, you know, be professional, worry, look at your tone. Mm-hmm. Don't be, you know, it's like, if this sounds like you shouting at your parents, yeah. it's not the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if this is could be read through a bullhorn, it's not the right yeah. thing. Like yeah, you, this needs to be a, so if you're, you know, if you were writing in, the personal statement about like, Hey, I had this show and we were able to explore these issues yes. and we were able to have these conversations yes. with people who had different perspectives. Yes. Like now that is, that makes you just, it sounds so adult. And yeah, I think that's what, when I read personal, I, I read a lot of personal statements and I just see so many of them that come off like hysterical, childish, yeah. naive, You it. you
1: know, they just don't look like a professional person. Right. And it's difficult. And it took months in order for me to get the tone on my personal statement, right, because I was largely doing it on my own, right, and I had some feedback uh, from my friend and from my sister in England, but um, largely it was like I could tell when I read it I was like i don't like it I don't like how I sound i feel I feel like I'm not putting my best foot forward right mm-hmm. and so at the at the end, my final version of my personal statement was just the most calm that I could be, right, and that that ended up meaning that I had to change. Huge, huge portions of it. Not necessarily content, but how I got that content across. Right. So cool. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, the optional statement, right? So, um, yeah, the, S- the Stanford has those fun. Oh, yeah. There's, that one optional was my the right? one. Yeah. It's so get to much pick. fun. Yeah. You got so, to- what did you write about? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, there are, I think, three or four options, and they allow you to pick two. Uh, the first one that I picked was pick three songs that you want the admissions committee to listen to when they read your personal statement. Yeah, I love that one. Oh my God, that was so much fun. I picked three different songs in three different languages because <laughs> that's just the kind of person I am. I, uh, you know, you grew up in the Bay Area, you uh, experience all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, hopefully this rings a bell with somebody. But if you're like me, you grew up watching anime, you grew up listening to hip hop, you grew up listening to rock, And, you know, if you're like me and you're Chicano or you're Mexican-American, then, you know, you know that music that your mom would play in the morning when she's cooking breakfast, right? And that's the kind, that crazy perspective is what I tried to boil down into those three songs, right? And just to give them, just to let them know that uh, they can't guess who I am. That was the idea. That's what I was trying to get across. It was like, you don't know what's coming with me. And so I picked very, very strange music. I tried to find songs they would never have heard before, and I think my humble opinion not so humble opinion i uh did well enough and uh the second any k-pop on there no, <laughs> no i thought about it so much though but uh no k-pop this time uh maybe next time <laughs> for those who don't know i like k-pop and uh okay and then the second the second essay was um if you could teach a class to the stanford students to your fellow students for a single day what would that class um, be on yeah So in school, I mentioned that I studied sociology. I also studied uh, English and philosophy. And my favorite branch of philosophy is existentialism, which is a, you know, if I were to put it as shorthand as possible, and I'm sure somebody out there is uh, pushing their glasses up their nose as I say this and getting angry. Existentialism is is simply, uh, if you you make it, then you got to own it right if you're going to decide what you like you have to own what you like right you have to admit that this is what i'm choosing it for myself right and i mean that in like a grand philosophical moral sense right so if you believe in right and wrong you have to admit to yourself that you're the one forcing yourself to to believe that and you have to own it right and so i don't know if you're aware of uh, the filmmaker alfonso cuaron but uh, he did uh, Roma. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I love that movie. Fantastic movie. And uh, when I saw that movie, it got some uh, wheels in my head thinking, and I started to think about his older movies, Y Tu mama Tambien, and Children of Men. And I realized that these movies actually have like, like, a, like a very similar running theme throughout them, right? And it's about existentialism, and it's about childbirth, and You know, and finding your own path and then owning it. And so I just said uh, that would I essentially just go through those movies in this class and teach the Stanford students about existentialism through the works of Alfonso Cuaron. And then I want to take that film class. Yeah,
0: me too. Right. And uh, can I audit it when you are a uh, Stanford professor?
1: Yeah, if you're (laughs) if you're in the area for sure. And uh, it'll all be online. But it'll be yeah, yeah. I'll make sure it's online and. Yeah, and uh, I just thought, you know, at the end of the day, the purpose of this class was to say, okay, listen, we live in a world where people are beginning to doubt the veracity of science, right? They're beginning to doubt whether or not, you know, your news can be real and if, you know, the things we study at school have any inherent truth to them. And at the end of the day, you have to admit to yourself at least if you're from coming from like a Western philosophical perspective, that it is all kind of make-believe, even science. Everything is make-believe, but it's still, in my opinion, very, very valuable. All of our science, all of our history, all of our politics, all of it. And so you have to own it, and existentialism will teach you how to own it, right? And so even if someone says, yeah, but how can you know that for certain? You say, I can't, but regardless, this is what we choose, Right. And, uh, I think that that's a lesson that you get from his movies. Right. So that was kind of long winded. I said it much more cleanly and shortly. In 250 words exactly. or whatever it was yeah. Right, that you yeah. had to edit it down. Exactly. To. So, yeah. but that was like the bare bones of it. Yeah.
0: If, if I want to learn about existentialism in a, uh, pop culture kind of a way, or like a, uh, pop science kind of a way, Let's what you have any
1: book recommendations for me? existentialism for dummies? Yeah. It's tough because I've studied this stuff for so long and yet my mind is going blank. But there is one movie uh, that I could recommend to you. Cool. It's uh, actually my favorite Akira Kurosawa film. And yeah, it is called Ran. Yeah, it's called Ran. and Okay. So when you get to the end of this film, it is a long film. It is beautiful. It is freaking amazing. Seven Samurai, Rashomon so freaking good but ran is my favorite because it really dives deep into existentialism and there's a single scene at the end of this movie it's the final scene of the movie where this woman who has been brutalized she stands at the the foot of a cliff and this and the movie ends okay and that's that's it and that's all you really need to know about existentialism is that it's a choice whether or not to continue It's a choice whether or not to accept it and to move on and to find your own path, or it's a choice to say, hey, the world is meaningless and none of this makes any sense anyway, so what difference does it make if I fall off that cliff, right? And that kind of balancing act is what existentialism is really trying to get anyone, the philosopher, to really kind of grapple with, is whether or not there's meaning in the universe. And if there isn't meaning in the universe, what do we do then? Do we keep going anyway, yes. or do we just throw up our hands yes. and say, fuck it? fuck it. Yeah, exactly. So cool. there's that. And uh, Penguin Classics also has this, this really great series. It's like a, I think it's called like the handbook intro to philosophy, general philosophies. I just finished the one on Hegel, and it was, uh, it was pretty good. It's pretty good. I hadn't had the chance to study Hegel in school. It's uh, a, I'm sure they have one on existentialism, and I'd recommend it because I like the author. He's pretty good. So, yeah, you just find the little intro to existentialism. And then also, uh, YouTube is a great resource. I'm going to say that. Yeah, people keep telling me
0: that. I don't use it, but I know people are just like, oh, no, you just learn absolutely everything you want. You You know,
1: when I'm at work or when I was at work, how I passed the time doing stuff that made me want to pull my hair out was I just learned stuff. I was just on YouTube learning stuff, you know. So... Hmm. I learned the basics of how to play the piano. I guess I use, I bet Wikipedia is pretty awesome for existentialism too. it is too. And there's the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that's also free online. It's pretty long. It's like very, very dense. And uh, you you could cite it scholastically, like as an academic. So it is like a pretty uh, solid thing. And then Crash Course on YouTube, Crash Course is really, really good. They have a great series on existentialism. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Learn, learn, learn. All right. Yeah. Any uh
0: any projects you're working on that you want to shout out? Hmm. Yeah. You already got
1: Bernie Sanders on there. So <laughs> uh, well I am still deciding whether I'm gonna vote for Warren or Sanders, but no, my project right now is me. So <laughs> uh <laughs> I mean that is in um I've been working pretty hard for a very, very long time and I'm I'm exhausted. And so I'm taking these next two months for myself. I'm going on vacation. I told Nathan I dyed my hair, you know, I'm going to concerts, I'm going to the, the best restaurants in the city, I am spending all my money, and I don't care, I'm just, I need to hit a hard reset, and so, you know, I'm not reading the news as much as I used to, or as much as I should, and I'm not, you know, that involved right now, but um, that's because I'm preparing myself to hit the ground running as fast as yeah, I can. Yeah, what do you have, can. six or seven weeks? Let's see, one. Seven. Yeah. Seven, six and a half. Yeah. Yeah. You got a trip to England, Cambridge, and then Paris. So yeah, I am. Uh... Enjoy it, man. Yeah, I'm going to try really hard to enjoy yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Live it up. I will. Instagram, Twitter, anything like that you want to give up?
1: Yeah. So my, my Instagram is at Kevin My last name is spelled D O U S A. I mostly tweet about fairly progressive, uh, bleeding heart kind of stuff and then my and k-pop and k-pop because that stuff is so much fun and if you're not into it i respect that but you should at least give it a try you know you got to open up your heart to the stuff that's out there and uh, and then um the other thing is my instagram and you can find me at k.m underscore underscore d edit on instagram and that's mostly just pictures of my ugly mug and my girlfriend (laughs) beautiful dude thanks so much for coming on this was awesome yeah god bless you nathan the first time i ever spoke to you i told you you are doing the lord's work i don't even believe in god that much i'm an agnostic but i highly you know i'm also an existentialist so i'm willing to say nathan and ben they are doing the lord's work and i'm an atheist and i take it as a compliment perfect You're, you're making making the good things happen and you're helping people like me you set me on the path to achieve what I have achieved, and you know I—I I don't owe anything to myself. I owe everything to all my teachers and to all of my supporters and all my friends, and to uh, my outside guru. So, you know, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Awesome. I uh,
0: really hope you enjoyed the interview. Let me just knock out a couple of these questions from Prep Test Seventy-One, and then I will wrap up the show. So this is uh, from the December 2013 LSAT prep test 71 section two logical reasoning question three. Peter says recent evidence suggests that moderate alcohol consumption has certain beneficial effects on health. In particular, alcohol creates an inhospitable environment in the human body for certain bacteria that can cause illness. Thus, alcohol consumption is on balance beneficial. And ideally, I think you're going to be kind of laughing by the time you get to the end of Peter's argument. Peter has done a very stupid thing here, which is assume that because alcohol has this one potential benefit, which is creating an inhospitable environment for bacteria that can cause illness. Peter's ignoring all of the possible terrible things that alcohol might be doing for your health. And then tries to conclude that alcohol consumption is on balance beneficial. So Peter's trying to conclude about a net effect by only citing one positive effect. You know, alcohol creates an inhospitable environment in the human body for certain bacteria that cause an illness. Yeah, Peter, but alcohol also creates an inhospitable environment in the human body for your actual liver, which you need to survive. So, you know, it's just ridiculous to try to conclude that alcohol consumption is, on balance, beneficial. If you're able to make an objection like that at all, I think you've already answered the question. So the question itself actually says, which one of the following most accurately expresses a flaw in the reasoning in Peter's argument? Flaw questions are descriptive. So they're like a must-be-true question first. Which one did they do? Which one did Peter do? And it's a problem that Peter did it. And my prediction here is, dude, you're just ignoring all the potential negative effects of alcohol. So did Peter A, take for granted that people choose to consume alcohol because they believe it is beneficial to their health? No. Takes for granted means assumes. And Peter did not assume that people choose to drink because they think it's beneficial to their health. Peter doesn't care why people choose to consume alcohol. I mean, Peter's a, an alcohol advocate saying, Hey, it's good for your health. But Peter does not assume that that's why most people, you know, or people who choose to drink alcohol do it for that reason. Peter's actually advocating that people do it for that reason. But Peter is not assuming that people do it for that reason. Okay. So A's out. B. Did Peter draw a comparison based on popular belief rather than on scientific opinion? No, Peter's not doing, you know, man on the street interviews and then saying, well, this guy doesn't think that global warming exists. Therefore, global warming doesn't exist. That that would be drawing a comparison based on popular belief rather than on scientific opinion. Okay. C. Fails to consider methods of achieving the same beneficial effects that do not involve alcohol. Peter did fail to consider those methods. But those methods are just not relevant. The fact that you know Peter thinks, "Hey, smoking also creates an inhospitable environment in the human body for certain bacteria that can cause illness, so smoking is good for you." That would have been the answer, maybe, if uh, or that would make C the answer. Other methods of achieving this bacteria benefit that has nothing to do with it. D it draws a conclusion about alcohol consumption in general. From a premise about moderate alcohol consumption. The premise is about moderate alcohol consumption. Peter does draw a conclusion about alcohol consumption in general. I didn't like A, B, or C. Peter at least did what D is describing. I would have to leave it open. E. It fails to consider that alcohol may have no effect on many bacteria that cause illness in human beings. It does fail to consider that possibility, but it doesn't matter because alcohol doesn't have to cure all bacteria in order for it to be a benefit to you. Peter says it does have an it does create an inhospitable environment for certain bacteria. That means some bacteria that can cause illness. But the, Peter doesn't care that it doesn't do it for all. He doesn't have to have all bacteria that cause illness. So E is a possibility that he did not consider, but that possibility doesn't matter. I'm going back to D. It's not exactly what I predicted. It's not exactly the words I predicted, but uh, I can comfortably pick it because I know that Peter did these things. Peter did draw a conclusion about alcohol consumption in general. He said, on balance, alcohol consumption is beneficial. He also said that uh, or he drew that from a premise about moderate alcohol consumption, the premise that it can do this thing for bacteria. So he did those things, and you know, having a, an overly broad conclusion is really what he did, right? He he made a a net conclusion, like alcohol consumption on balance is net better. That is a a conclusion about alcohol consumption in general. So I can comfortably pick D and move on. Um all right, one more. This is December 2013, Prep Test 71, Section 2, Question Number 4. A consultant says, Children taught using innovative new educational methods learn to think more creatively than children taught using rote methods, such as drills. That makes a lot of sense to me. But they are less adept at memorizing large amounts of information. Okay. Yeah, I totally get that you know teach them with all these new crazy educational methods they might be more creative innovative new methods might make them more creative than using rote methods like drills but maybe the drills are better for memorizing large amounts of information okay yeah most jobs at grodex corporation require the ability to think creatively but do not require a strong ability to memorize okay so these are necessary conditions of the job or one of them is a necessary con- condition which is you have to be able to think creatively one of them is just not you don't have to be able to memorize. Okay. So Grodex should probably conduct its employee training seminars using the innovative methods because um, I'm looking for their employee training seminars where it will help people think more creatively. I mean, I know that you know, that's true of children. I don't know that that's true of like adult employees of the Grodex corporation. So the because blank indicates to me that this is a strengthened question. When it says which one of the following most logically completes the argument here, the fact that we're logically completing the argument after a because means that a premise is what's asked for notice the so at the beginning of that sentence too. So the first half of that sentence is the conclusion. And then the last half of the sentence is going to be a premise in support of that conclusion. So my prediction is Grodex's employee training seminars will help their employees think creatively. A, most of the employees at Grodex began in high school to learn the creative thinking skills that they later used on the job. But if they already have those creative thinking skills, then why do you need to do them in your employee training seminars. It's not what I predicted. I have an objection to A. I I don't think so. B. Corporations that conduct training seminars for employees using innovative educational methods are generally more successful than are corporations that do not conduct training seminars. Boy, that just didn't get there at the end. I liked the first half of it, but I wanted it to say they're generally more successful at teaching their employees to think creatively, because that's the requirement of these jobs. C, less than half of the employees at Grodex regularly attend the company's training seminars. (laughs) That would weaken the idea that they should even have these training seminars at all. I don't see how that's a logical completion of the argument. D, The effects of teaching methods in the education of adults are generally very similar. There it is to the effects of those methods in the education of children. See, we already had a premise that said it works with kids, but we don't know for sure that it's going to work with adults. And so D helps to just bridge that gap. It just tightens up the argument a little bit. Hey, if this is true of kids, generally it's going to work for adults too. So maybe Grodex should use these innovative new methods so that they could help their employees. Think more creatively, which is a requirement of the job. So yeah, D makes perfect sense. E, knowing how to think creatively helps people to compensate for deficiencies in memorization skills. No, but this job, these jobs, we already know that they don't need memorization skills. So who cares? If they have deficiencies, that's irrelevant. We also already know that creativity is required. So E just is like a whiff because knowing how to think creatively helps people compensate for deficiencies in memorization skills. I don't care. They don't, we don't need their memorization skills. So compensating for a deficiency for what? We don't need that. The answer is D because it's the closest by far to my prediction. It does logically help to bridge the gap between the fact, the premise about kids and then this conclusion about adults. And D really does bridge that gap. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave it there. We have, uh, 1400 plus members in the Thinking Elsat podcast group on Facebook. Check us out over there. Uh, give the Thinking Elsat Facebook page a like if you're inclined to do that sort of thing. There's a link in the group or you could just search for at Thinking Elsat on Facebook. We're also at Thinking LSAT on Instagram. We are at Thinking Elsat on Twitter. I'm in Fox on Twitter. Ben is Olsen Benjamin on Twitter. We have two separate websites. Uh, Ben is strategyprep.com. You can learn about his classes in DC. I'm foxlsat.com. You can learn about my classes in Los Angeles and San Francisco. We have all sorts of uh, online and one-on-one options, uh, including, of course, lsatdemon.com, which is what Ben is hard at work on right now. lsatdemon.com lets you study LSAT questions on the go. It's got all of my explanations. It's got all of Ben's explanations, hundreds of hours of video to help you understand your mistakes. It's also an AI platform that learns from your mistakes and feeds you questions at the appropriate level of difficulty and also even of the appropriate type. So I'm just kind of in awe of what really Ben has been able to create because he's done all the development on it. And I've just been lucky to kind of be along for the ride don't forget, you can listen on uh, everything Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, com. That was show number 201. Thank you, Kevin Dusa, for being a guest and also a longtime listener of the show. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.